0: Um, so this, uh, actually for a while now, we've been in a sermon series through Matthew 5 through 7. We started off with the beginning from Matthew 5, verse 1 through the Beatitudes, um, and now we're in a series in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount that we're calling uh, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. So if you're here for the first time, I did not, that's not my title, I'm not about to say that I'm that good. Um <laughs> It's Jesus' greatest sermon ever preached that we're going to try to explain well to you. Okay? So if you do want to hear the greatest sermon, you can read it in your Bibles. Um, But we're going to try to explain it a little bit better. Uh, So I'm going to be continuing in on on this series, and uh, we're going to be in the middle of chapter five. Uh, But before we dive into that, let me pray for us just one more time. Let's bow in prayer. God, it's your grace that uh, allows us to be here, and, and I pray that it would be your grace that gives us reason to rejoice. Um, even in the song, How Great Thou Art, it's just, um, it's awesome that the verse that says that when we think about how you did not spare your son uh, for us, and it's just, our response is you are so awesome. Then sings my soul, How Great Thou Art, and I pray that everything that we do in this service would be expression of that. That it would start first from Christ Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and all that he is as he reigns in glory, his great love and grace for us, even as we hear through testimonies, and our response, how great thou art. So would that be the very same through the giving of our offerings, our listening to the message, our reading of scripture, um, our prayers, even our barbecuing, all those kinds of things? It all just be about how great thou art. And so that is our prayer at this time. And so would you take great glory unto yourself from our joy. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So all of us have a different story. You know, even we heard the testimonies from the two sisters of how we relate with Christianity, right? Some of us are still on that road. We haven't figured it out, aren't ready to necessarily say that we're a believer in Jesus or if all this stuff is true. Some of us are on the other side of the spectrum where since day one, we've grown up in the church, and we've just it's just been a part of our lives. Jesus has been a, a core, he's been everything to me from the beginning, and some of us are kind of in the middle. And like the stories we've heard, we've all had this kind of journey, and regardless of what part of the journey you're on, when we hear the word Christian or church, we immediately have some sort of images, right? We, we have some expectations. Uh, Priscilla even just shared about it in her, in her, uh, uh, small, or her Christian fellowship on her campus. Last week, uh, when Jennifer gave her testimony, she talked about seeing Christians and feeling they were a particular way. And so we're all in that realm right now. Um, my, I have an older sister. She doesn't go here. When she thinks Christians, oftentimes she thinks of Ned Flanders. Uh, y'all know Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. Uh, some people get the image of of like people like Mother Teresa or the Pope. Um, and unfortunately, there's the negative side of some people when they hear Christian instantly, they think oh somebody who is hyper judgmental or maybe uh, uh, too conservative or rigid. Um, I used to always get the image growing up as a kid of of people with hard hats on and Habitat for Humanity shirts and lifting up the wall together and be like, yay, and celebrating at Habitat for Humanity. So it turns out you don't always get to push up the exterior wall, by the way. Like Ernie and I went on a trip and we did not do that. Um, the thing is, when I was growing up, uh, and, and this is where, let me rewind a little bit. All of this is shaped, whether you see Ned Flanders or the Pope or somebody judgmental, it's, it's shaped by your experience, by the people around you, by the things you may have seen for yourself or attended, by what you were taught as a child. And for me, when I think, who are Christians? I remember so vividly as a kid having a few particular things that I thought of. And unfortunately, based upon my upbringing, it was from the negative side of Christians are people who don't do the following. The first was Christians are people who don't drink alcohol. That is from my upbringing, from what I was taught, from what I saw, from what I thought as a kid, that was my first expectation. Secondly was Christians are people who don't have tattoos. And lastly, Christians are people who don't curse. So if this were true, I look at this list and I'm like, oh, damn it, like, ah, like strike three, right? Like this is, this is a problem. And this is just uh, shaped from... When I, when I was a kid, I remember I had an older cousin who was a lot older. I remember my uncle going through his stuff looking for something I didn't know while yelling at him, like, I smell the beer on you. And my uncle, for some reason, just being really, really, really angry and me just thinking, wow, like, whatever this beer thing must be really bad. I remember uh, older people at my church talking about how having tattoos were a pagan practice, and if you marked your body, it was so sinful. And cursing. I remember my mom, she hated when my sister and I used the word hell. So if we were like, shut the hell up to each other or whatever, we'd always get like, you know, spanked. And it, but the thing is, she was learning English, so she didn't know the real American curse, or English curse, American. English curses, like the four-letter words. So if she heard anybody say that, she, it wouldn't faze her. But if we said hell, all of a sudden it was like the worst thing came out of our mouths. And I'd get punished. I'd like, oh gosh, like, what the hell? And I remember like, getting punished for that. The thing is, like, we're all going to, in one way or another, and hopefully not in this way, not ho- hopefully in the incorrect way, come up with this image of who are Christians? What are they meant to be? What, are, what should they be doing? What are they about? And instead of it being shaped by all of the external stimuli that may or may not be true, what we have is in the scriptures, this very clear image and teaching that is absolutely true. John Stott, he's a, uh, I mean, some of you know him very well, but for those of you who don't, he's a, uh, he's passed now, but he's an English uh, pastor and theologian and author of really great books, and he calls the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through the closest thing that we have to Jesus' manifesto. He says that the sermon is Jesus' description of who he wants his followers to be, what he wanted them to do. And that in Matthew 5-7, through we see what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So it answers the question, who are Christians? What do they do? What do they look like? And so all the assumptions and wrong impressions that we may have from our upbringing or from the media, TV, from from some person that we know, we can push those aside and just see it right here. And so we're going to jump in and the whole summer is going to be through this sermon and for me, as we start today, I want to just pose that question. Who, if, if that's what we're looking for, what are Christians? Who do they, like, what do they look like? What do they do? We'll find it right here in Jesus' teaching. So we're going to be starting from verse 21 in chapter 5 of Matthew. And you can read up along on the screen with me or from your Bibles. Matthew 5:21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, Let your, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jesus begins his teaching in, in verse 21 by saying, you have heard that it was said, And then in verse 22, you'll notice that he says, but I say to you. And this is a pattern that we're going to see for the next, like, five, six weeks, where Jesus starts the passage, you have heard it said, blank, but I say to you, and then he follows it up. The reason why he's saying this is that he's, he's essentially saying you, like, he knows his audience, right? He's standing in front of Jews, teaching people who've probably known the Bible or the scriptures inside out, who have been taught since a young age, raised up to know all the commandments that they, they received through the Mosaic law. And so he knows his audience and he says, you've understood it this way, but I'm going to teach you it in its fullness. You may have read these laws in this way and, and, and interpreted it and accepted it in your life in this way, but I'm going to help you understand it fully. So he speaks of the, uh, of the command to not murder, which every person in the audience would have known. It's from the Ten Commandments. Thou shall not murder. And it's even almost, if I can dare to say, like an obvious commandment of just not only, it's just not which is Christianity. It's just a humanity thing. Do not murder. The thing is that Jesus, he bumps it up to a whole nother level. Because now he's saying it's not just about taking life. It's about the internal stuff. It's about anger. He says, those who insult your brother or call one a fool, you will be liable to judgment. So to the, uh, to the people he was talking to, that must have been shocking. And, and I assume and I hope that it's a bit shocking to us, right? Because essentially Jesus is saying that not only the outward act of murder or taking someone's life, but the internal anger that we have or the abusive use of speech or language, what we do with our tongues that, are, that can be attacking or anger-filled, violates God's command, thou shalt not murder. It should be shocking that Jesus' standards are that if you insult people or you're angry with others in an unrighteous way, that it's tantamount to killing somebody. So it must have been shocking. And I would assume it is for us today. The thing is Jesus as we see so much throughout his ministry and through scriptures and not only through the gospels but through all of the bible God's looking directly into our hearts and wanting to start with the internal posture of our hearts and our souls. And that's exactly what the Pharisees ignored. So the Pharisees and religious teachers of the day, they found themselves to be fully righteous with God. I'm good. Me and the guy upstairs, we're perfectly fine because I did not stab anybody or or shoot anybody. I did not take away life all the while harboring bitterness, anger, and hatred towards others. We see them constantly speaking down and judging people, speaking ill of people in their community. So they may have not literally stabbed somebody, but they lived their lives stabbing people in the back figuratively all the time. Yet, because I did not break the law, I didn't kill anybody. They felt, I'm good. I'm clean. I'm righteous before the Lord. I have kept the law. But Jesus shows them another way you heard and you think it's this way but you have broken that law a long time ago in the way that you've killed with your heart see jesus did not come just to fix our exterior actions and i think that's something that we relate to the pharisees in we're so maybe i don't know maybe it's just me maybe you too so concerned about my outward actions and when i fix those it's almost like i'm good But when the outward actions are bad, then I feel guilty. Without first starting with the internal posture that really Christ came to create a righteousness inside of us that would then produce external fruit, not the other way around. Like the Pharisees, I don't know about you guys, but I know that there's so many times in my life when if I'm responding in anger to something that someone else did, I'm good. right? Do you ever have that? Do you ever have an argument with family, friends? Boss, coworker, whoever, somebody in your community And you find yourself fuming And like boiling in anger At something that they did And then my instinct Is to call somebody Or I guess people don't call anymore Text somebody or tweet about it Be like, ah, oh, my boss is an a-hole And like you get flipping out, right? And I'm good I never stop to think that my heart has gone astray or that like, my posture is actually going in the opposite direction. Ironically, I'm going along the trend of deeper and deeper into sin while complaining about somebody else's sin. I'm so consumed by this whatever was done, whatever wrongdoing that was done that has created anger inside of me that I don't even care about the fact that I'm boiling and steaming. The other day, uh, I was watching the NBA playoffs, and just skimming through, I was watching uh, whatever, uh, maybe game three or four or five of the Golden State and um, the Oklahoma City Thunder series. And and Draymond Green, who's a, a player on on the on the Warriors, is just doing all this stupid stuff, right? He's making bad passes, he's kicking people in the nuts, and like saying that he didn't do it on purpose. And all this mess is happening on the TV. And and I'm not emotionally tied to the series because the Celtics aren't in it. I don't really care. But if I had to choose, I'm like, oh well, there, it's a really historic. Uh, historic season and I want them to complete it. So I'm like, okay, let's go Warriors. And so Draymond is kicking people in the nuts and being an idiot. And so I'm looking at the TV and my wife was sitting on the couch next to me on her phone. I'm like, God, like you idiot! Like stop! Like make the pass! Whatever. And I'm yelling at the TV. And she stops and she's still on her phone. So I don't even think she's paying attention to me. And she goes, you don't have to call him an idiot, you know. (laughs) I'm like, you don't understand! You're... Oh, women right like you don't understand basketball and, and this is a really light example right and so I didn't think much of it but later you know of course I have to think about it or I gotta listen right I think about it and yeah it's just TV I don't know Draymond Green he's not my bro I'm not gonna text him or to his face be like yo you're an idiot but it all starts somewhere and I realized, I even shared this with, the, with Pastor Bill and Pastor Hojin this week, that that is actually foundational for me. That if I really were to stop and think about my life, and there are many times where I'm not yelling at somebody, but somebody does something that I disagree with. In my head, I roll my eyes. In my head, I think, you're a fool. Somebody might cut me off on the road. Or I'm like honking, and I'm thinking, wow, you're such an idiot. Or like all these different curse words are bubbling up in my head, and I'm fuming with anger. It's so easy. I'll speak for myself. It's really easy for me to see something happen from somebody else. And based upon whether I think I've merited the right to judge or criticize that action, I'm good. You're an idiot. Ironically, the, the word that Jesus uses in verse 22 you fool! The for fool is is it's not it's not a curse word in the original language. It's 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 fool. It's translated correctly. Synonyms would be idiot. Uh, one of the uh, biblical dictionaries I use said numbskull, but I don't think that matches our 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 current age group in the room. You numbskull, right? That's so insulting. No, but that that's what the word is. It's to criticize intelligence, and I do that all the time. Sometimes you hear it. Sometimes the TV hears it but most of the time it's in here, but it's still going on. It's in here, and it's still going on. So Jesus, he's talking about our anger because, yeah, like I hope nobody in here has ever killed anybody, but for sure we're guilty of that, doing that inside of our hearts. And, and he's saying that it's tantamount to murder the way that we are angry with others. And I'm sure that there have been times in our lives where maybe you can relate to me just yelling at the TV or an actual person like our spouses and our arguments or our family members, our siblings and parents, how we can boil so much and yell at them with our family and friends and like coworkers, whoever, our significant others. For those of you who are married, maybe you're dating and you've gotten to these yelling matches and you're just clashing. And it's all about what they did to make you get to that place, not about where you are, what you're saying, how you're controlling. So the internal status of our hearts will be seen in the ways that we're able to control our anger and our lips. And it's all going to start from our minds and our hearts. In the second half of the passage, so the first half, Jesus is saying like what not to do, right? Withhold your anger, control your tongue. And now he's saying to go and do something and he says, essentially, like the, I'm going to highlight it in yellow here, the important part is reconciliation. Jesus is saying on one side, on the first half of this passage, let's control our anger, withhold, withhold calling and insulting people or lashing out in anger or being abusive in your speech towards others. And also, go. Be the one to go and reconcile. You know, reconciliation, like it's you don't really use that word very often in normal conversation. We use it a lot in the church. And and just to make sure that we're all on the same page, the way that I'm gonna define it is restoring harmony with others. So relationship for some reason has been broken. You got into a fight, somebody made somebody angry, somebody stabbed somebody in the back, some argument happened, and it was broken. And to reconcile is to restore the harmony that you had with others in relationship. The thing is, Jesus, in his, what he's teaching in this passage is he's saying, you go and be the one to do it. Now, if you're anything like me, if somebody were to say to go and reconcile, the first thing that I'm thinking of is first, whose fault was it? Because if it wasn't my fault... You texted or you told the wrong person to go reconcile. It's they need to reconcile. They need to apologize to me. But there's nothing about this. There's no, there's no terms and conditions. Jesus doesn't say in this situation and when this person does this or if that, go and reconcile. He just says purely no, be the restorers of harmony and relationship, period. Go. So it's not, let's make this clear. That Christ like re- reconciliation has nothing to do about whose fault it is, who was the worst offender, whether it was a one sided argument or sin or not, whether you were 100% in the right, 100% in the wrong, whether someone apologized to you first, you push that aside to lower ourselves and, and simply go. Restore harmony in your relationships. Lunji and I, uh, again, my wife, who was telling me not to call Draymond Green an idiot, um, we started dating in December 2008 when we were both in college. And, and, you know, we were actually our first boyfriend and girlfriend. So we were new to, uh, to, uh, to dating. And um, so we wanted to do a good job and, like, figure it out and do it well. And so what we did was, you know, we, we made sure that we were stuck in our, in our church community, had mentor figures, and found accountability. Um, we, we read books together. And, and, you know, of course, we're so, like, we're young and clunky along the way, but did our best to be fed into it. And then we got engaged and then went through premarital counsel and enga- counseling during engagement time and then got married. And as much as all of that stuff was really great, one thing that somebody, that nobody actually taught us, is something that I feel like has, maybe I need to think about it more, but I think is the, the, the number one reason as to why we have a strong and healthy marriage right now. And nobody taught us this. We never read it in a book. We never went over it during premarital counseling. And this isn't to say that those things weren't important, but something that we learned on our own. So I cannot emphasize this any more. I mean, you don't have to be married, just in relationship, period we learned that it is always your responsibility and call to initiate reconciliation. Even when you don't want to, when you're not ready, when, you're not, when you think you were the one that were wronged, if you think they were at fault, if you feel like you didn't do anything bad, even when the other is unapologetic, reconciliation is always both of our duties in every situation. So what I said to her from the beginning It's like, you and I, every time we're not good, we need to race to reconcile. It's like a competition, like who's going to get there first? And I cannot emphasize any more how much I think that the reason why, I mean, other than God's grace, right, and his shepherding care over our lives, which, I mean, this is a part of it, right, our strength in marriage is because we both see it as our job, regardless of who did what. The initiation of reconciliation is our call and it does that. It reconciles. It brings harmony back into your relationships where it was broken. And Jesus doesn't put the standards on it. He just says, go and do it. So in summary, what do Christians look like? What do they do? Who are they? Jesus asks his disciples to be people who control their anger, anger both outwardly expressed and inwardly felt. And he asks his disciples or Christians to be people who are the initiators and reconcilers in this world. We control our anger, we control our tongues, and we invest in restoring harmony. Now, how do we go and do that, right? That's the hard part. Like, okay, like I've probably heard that before. And the thing is, I was thinking about this and, I, you know, there's like all these... Uh, you know how there's like secular anger management, right? And there's like, you know, every time you have uh, the the bubble of anger inside of you, do three, two, one, one, two, three. What is bothering me? And answer that question. And we can send you all to the classes and get anger management, right? And maybe those things might work for you, but it surely doesn't work for me. Um, and I I realize that controlling these two things it has to we have to realize that we have a choice some of us that 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 time period in which you're able to choose is very small some of us something happens boom and it's like a split second and the fire has already started and everybody get out of the way but whether it's one millisecond or, like, I need to stop and think about this, and later I, I'm like, oh, wow, that was messed up, and now I'm angry. All of us are on a different spectrum, but all of us have a choice. It, you have a choice. There's a fork in the road, and we can either choose to express that anger and let it lash out uncontrollably or for us to withhold We have the ability to choose. And only until we start realizing that it starts internally in us and not in them will we start to be able to hone and exercise that muscle and be able to use it when the time comes. So we need to stop. If you want to get this under control, you need to start blaming the situation and start recognizing that it's not the natural automatic default response that you are freely given to to take up upon but you have a choice to withhold. You have a choice to go down the different road. So I ask you, church, what is your choice going to be? Are we going to look like a disciple of Christ or not? The fact of the matter is that all of us, at some point in our lives, and many points in our lives will say, no, I'm not going to choose to look like a disciple the truth is that I can give you this recommendation. Number one, recognize that you have a choice. And number two, stop blaming the external situation and start thinking internally. And a lot of us, I hope all of us, will grow in getting better and better and better. But regardless of how good we are on that end, there will be points in the story, like blips and pieces here, some of us more than others, where we'll fail. At the end of verse 26, Jesus, he's using this metaphor of being taken to court and he says that you'll be responsible for paying every penny of your wrongdoing. And already he's blown up the commandment. He said, do not murder. I'm good with that. But he says, don't be angry. Don't call somebody a fool. And I look at myself, I've already told you my stories. I'm already failed. I've failed in so many ways. The thing is, what I love about the fact of The rest of Matthew, in particular the end, is that all of those pennies that he's talked about has been paid for. He says that you won't get out without every penny being paid, and Christ paid that already. All the unforgiveness, all the lashing out, every time you blew up on somebody, every time you kept silent but inside of your heart you harbored bitterness and anger, All the times that you did not initiate uh, reconciliation, in fact, you turned around passively and you said, I don't need anything to do with you. All of it nailed to the cross so that you are paid for. You and I are deserving of punishment for failing these commands, but hallelujah, that we can sing songs that say that all of that has been paid for and that we can look at Jesus' life and what he did on the cross and all of his message of grace and how he actually takes us and reconciles us to the Father, even amidst those failures. Let's let's look carefully at what Jesus did. He could have been angry with you, right? He should have called us all fools, because in a lot of senses we are. Instead, he takes on the wrath and punishment of God instead of pouring that out on us. Let's look at reconciliation. We cause separation, our sin, between us and God. And the rift continues to build through our sin and through our failures. And Jesus could have been like, all right, that's the last straw. I'm done. I'm going the other way. I'm done with you. He wasn't the one at wrong. Who initiates in this situation? Jesus is the one that grabs a hold of you even when you don't want to be reconciled. And he's the one who does it. There are no terms and conditions to his reconciliation unto you. I think about the, the passion narratives and at Gethsemane when, he's, when the mob comes to arrest him and how he does not fight back. I think about his character when during trial he, he's accused and remains silent. I think about him being nailed to the cross as people come by accusing and hurling insults at him. And his prayer is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. For Jesus, it wasn't about who the transgressor was. It wasn't about who apologized how well. He initiated the reconciliation so that you can have peace and harmony with him and with the Father. So as we read this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, this is our guide to strive for. This should be the chapters and not being overflowing in anger and all these things should be what we strive for because it is. Who are the disciples of Christ? It answers that question. But let us not leave, whether today or next week or the next, thinking, oh, my, I've just failed at all of those things and having guilt just pour down on our shoulders and make us drag our feet and just think, like, man, like, I'm so guilty. Like, I'll do my best to not do that again. But let's start from the different perspective. The penny has been paid for you. Your anger, anger outbursts, your refusal to reconcile has been nailed to the cross. Christ Jesus reconciled you with the Father and made peace and harmony with the Father that cannot be taken away. And knowing that in fullness that you have been accepted by the Lord, knowing in fullness that that relationship and, and harmony is ever-present, Would that be the fuel that leads us to be the ones to bring harmony back into our relationships in the world? To be ones who do control our anger, mind our tongues, and not just to withhold, but to fill our speech not with curses and insults, but with encouragement, with praise, with uplifting words that build others up. Church, let's remember what Christ has done for you in this realm so that we can there and go and do unto others as he has done unto us. Let's bow and pray and bring this to the Lord. Gracious God, we know that there we're, we're grateful for this um, this. I don't know, uh, it's, it's so far above our understanding, but like this beautiful intermingling of you already having saved our souls and, and that, our, that our eternity is set while at the same time still working on us today. And so on the first, firstly, God, we, I, I want to pray for all of us in this room that you would remind us of that confidence of our eternal status if we are in Christ Jesus. If we've confessed to you as our Lord and Savior, accepted you into our lives, remind us that you have paid the cost for our anger, for our insulting others, for the bitterness inside of our hearts, for our refusal to reconcile. And you did that for us. And now you call us son and daughter. You love us As a child, you see us as a precious son and daughter of yours and you love us in the fullness of love that we can't even begin to describe. Give us that deep confidence and would that be a foundation, Lord, that we stand upon that is never shaken. And upon that standing, Lord, we still long not to just remain still but to move forward, to walk and to grow To develop, to be sharpened, for our character to be honed, for our integrity to increase. And so we do ask, Lord, that you would, in your power, in your strength, by your example, by your doing this unto us, and by this gift that you have given us, help that to become alive in us so that we might give that gift to others. Teach us what it means to control our anger, to control our tongues. To let our lips and our hearts and our minds be filled with love and encouragement and praise for others, not insult and bitterness. And Father, when relationship is broken, I pray that we would be the ones to put it back together in the way that you have restored our relationship with you. The world might see Christians as Mother Teresas or as judgmental haters, but I pray that we would be the ones to show them the followers of Jesus are the ones that bring harmony in all relationship. The followers of Jesus are the ones who do not curse others, but love them. Disciples of Jesus are the ones who withhold from bitterness and anger inside of our hearts and who choose joy and love instead. So Holy Spirit, we pray that your power would work in that way, shaping us and that everything that you teach us in the Sermon on the Mount would be something that starts taking form inside of us. That is our passionate, bold, fervent prayer. Would everything that you describe and what you prescribe of your believers, of your followers, of your disciples, be more and more alive in us for your glory, and so that more and more people confess Christ as Lord and give you praise by the way that we love by the way that we restore harmony in this world take all of it God Do our character becoming more like yours would it not be so that we could be in a better place or we can feel better about ourselves but would it be purely and 100% holy so that more praise and worship can be given unto you we pray all these things in Jesus name Amen.